not only does Satan put it into the heart, but in some strange way that the Bible talks about, Satan enters into him. So you have Satan again, not just there, but he's in a person. So, what is going on in this text? Okay? And then to make it worse, look at verse 33. I'm sorry, tell me that. Verse 33. Jesus says some very encouraging things. Hey, I'm getting ready to leave. You can't come. Jesus, Satan's here. Juice is going to betray us, and we can't even go with you where you're going. Could it get any worse? It actually could. Um, my favorite person in the Bible might have to be Peter. Um, I think he's just quick shooting. He just oh, shot too early. He's kind of the body five. He just shoots and doesn't know. Well, darn it. He just talks too fast, right? He just doesn't think. And Peter says, Jesus, wherever you go, oh, yeah. And Jesus goes, Peter, you're going to know me three times. Encouraging words. So you have this setup. Chapter 13, you have the, the lead apostle, the apostle of the apostles. Their, their main guy is going to look like a fool in the next few hours. So the summary of this is, this is a really bad situation. This is terrible. Jesus is saying, I'm going to die. You can't come with me. Satan's here. You're all scared, freaked out, nervous. And Peter's going to look like a fool pretty soon. Not exactly the best situation to be in if you're a Christian right now, right? And I wonder how many of us understand maybe this season of life where things just keep flying out of control. Maybe Satan, I don't know if it's what he does in your life. He's doing something. He's not, you're not his friend. There's something in your life where there's something, maybe it's now, something just going weird. You're really confused or you're really upset. Or maybe just from the real attacks of sin or the enemy, I don't know. And you're like, Jesus, why are you even here? You're, I thought you left. What are you doing? I think, I think all of us can understand that feeling. Maybe not now, but a couple of weeks you might. Or Monday morning you might hit you. Or maybe you're, you've been in that for the last two months. I don't know. But I think all of us understand what it's like to be in a situation. And then we, like the disciples, we freak out. We go, is it because I didn't pray enough? Like, I, I mean, I didn't take communion. I didn't feel very well. Like, is that what's going on? I skipped church. Is that why he's got mad at me again? We, we just play the blame game. What, who is it? What's going on? I think we've all been there. Then we hear Jesus speak again those these surprising words. Look at chapter 14. So now we have kind of to understand what's going on. And then in verse 1, Jesus says something that almost makes you want to do what the verse says not to do. Let not your hearts be troubled. Well, how can I do that? I'm having trouble thinking about it. Like, hey, don't worry. I'm worried about that too. That's what's happening, right? Let not your hearts be troubled. Jesus says, believe in God, believe also in me. So that's actually a command. So don't let your heart be troubled is a command. And also, therefore, believe in God, believe also in me. So the sermon for today, the, the, the title I kind of uh, had, is the biblical cure for the troubled heart. Okay, so we have sorrow, we have worry, we have Satan's involved, we have sinful men betraying, whatever it may be. Jesus says the cure is, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And what he's not going to tell us to do is not going to tell us to go binge on Netflix to kind of numb ourselves to the world. It's really easy. It's guilty here. He's not going to tell us to go outside and like hide in the woods and be like, well, if I shoot some stuff, I don't think about it. Which I think those are good things to shoot things. It's fun. He's not going to tell us to slip the day away and say, I'll do it tomorrow. Jesus is going to say some words that are going to say, right now, while you're worried and troubled, believe in God, believe also in me. Here's, a bunch, here's three reasons why. 
and you just got to map it out for you. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to see why we shouldn't be worried. Because everything in this world is temporal, believe it or not. So everything he's going to say is going to have an internal weight. It's going to be very significant, very unchanging, very steady, okay? And faith, I want to find faith real quickly. Uh, not just empty faith, like, we'll just believe a little better. That's belief in your own belief. Okay? We're not talking about that. We're talking about belief in an actual person. In a, an unchanging standard, right? So, um, biblical belief is not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith. Right? So, you can be a weakling. You can be just terrified. But because Jesus is so powerful and omnipotent, He will hold you fast. And we know that. So, the point is not, if you believe harder, you're going to be okay. It's believe in the unmoving, eternal Christ. And you, and you won't be troubled. That's the killer. So that's what we're going to do. So we're going to see three things. Um, and since I'm Baptist, I've got to use the same letter for all of them. So, uh, our, inter- <laughs> our eternal dwellings, His eternal authority, and God's eternal glory. That's where we're going to go. So eternal dwellings, His eternal authority, and God's eternal glory. So first I want to take us to the assurance of our, of our hope, of our eternal abiding, of our rest. So we're going to go first. So if you read verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I could prepare a place for you? Um, I assume I'm not the only one, but when you read this verse, did anybody think of a, a song called It's a Big, Big House with Lots and Lots of Room, Big, Big Head Nodding? Thank you very much. Audio adrenaline is done a lot of good stuff. Uh, it's my Father's house, right? So verse 2, Jesus talks about my Father's house, that there's many rooms. So Jesus says where he's going, he's going to a familiar place. Not a place that they worry about. He's not going to some mysterious realm where he's just going to be gone forever. He's going to a place that Jesus actually knows very well. He's going to his dad's house, his father's house. That's where he's going. Where God sits on the throne. It's, that's heaven. I think we know that's heaven, but in case you didn't know, the father rules in heaven. That's where he resides. Okay. Um, I think every person in the world... Um, has this longing sense or understanding that uh, heaven exists, or at least there's something heaven-like, right? Like we all we all know that when something bad happens, it shouldn't be this way. Like there's like there's a piece of the Garden of Eden just lodging their hearts in. People shouldn't be dying this young. Why is this happening? This is it, this is just is it, your heart just goes. That's injustice. Like we 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 know this shouldn't be the way it's supposed to be. We know that. We know there's something wrong. There's something busted up. Something's wrong. And we know things ought not be this way. So Jesus says he's leaving to his father's house, a place where there's no more pain, no more crying and sorrow, no more sin, no more death, no more decay, no more locked doors. Everything about that? Go walk into your house. Heaven, walk in. No more hospitals. No more 911. No more calling the night. They're just terrifying. That's where Jesus is going. He's going to a really good place. And what's interesting is Jesus tells us this. He tells us it's my father's house, but also he says something about it. Look at verse 2 again, the second half. There are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I could prepare a place for you? So in heaven, guess what? It's a big, big house. It's a lot of room. The truth is. And the second thing about heaven that we think about is not only does it exist, but I think mankind in general would say, if it exists, I, I should be going there. I'm not that bad. Right, one sin isn't really that bad. Just life. Right? My parents were really just harsh on me, so I just looked at them like twice. Curfew at 10.30. Right? Sin's not that bad. It's not that big of a deal. Right? About a year ago, 
uh, Ligonier, who is a, which is R.C. Sproul's ministry, he was the founder of and the main guy behind, and uh, Lifeway, they did this huge poll where they pulled, I think it was about a thousand people roughly, I think about a little more, I'll get these out number down, I've got to write down. And they asked all these questions about doctrine, they asked if you're a Christian, people would say yes or no, and if you would, they'd ask you a series of questions about just, do you believe the Bible is the Word of God? Do you believe Jesus is the only Do you believe Jesus is God? Do you believe whatever, okay? And one of the questions that they asked was, do you believe that heaven is a place, quote, where all people will ultimately be reunited with their loved ones? So heaven, the mass opinion poll, I think the percentage is like 60% of people, okay, believe that heaven is a place where, for the most part, all people will go to see their friends and family that die. So basically, yeah, we're all going to go to that robber that I know, and that guy who shot that school. They're not going, but we are. That's the common understanding of heaven. So most people believe that they have nothing to worry about. Jesus has been talking about somebody else. But the question of the text, if you've ever thought about it, is what does he mean that I'm going to prepare a place? You ever think about that? Look at verse 2. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I, I know Jesus was a carpenter. I don't think that's the dream he's trying to get at. Like, I'm going to go up there, go to Amiibo, it's going to look real good. I don't think he's doing cleaning. So, what's preparing a place? What does he mean by that? Um, what's good about having a computer is I don't have to do any, I don't have to know anything about Greek. You can just click a button and it says Greek and it pops it all up, okay? Uh, the Greek word for many rooms, if you have the New American Standard, your, your Bible will say um, eternal dwellings, okay? It's very, apparently that's the best translation according to people who are smart than I am, okay? So that's the best understanding. So not just rooms or many mansions, mansions, I think of the King James of many mansions, right? The best understanding is eternal Dwelling, so an eternal place where you're going to be forever. So, my father's house has many eternal dwellings, and I'm going to go prepare that place for you. How does Jesus prepare an eternal dwelling for you? That's a question of the text, right? How does he do that? Let's look at the Old Testament where God dwelled is the temple, correct? It's where God's presence was most seen and visibly shown. There'd be fire, there'd be smoke, there'd be, you touch you're going to die. That's where God was. In the book of Hebrews and Revelation, the Bible says that that temple on earth was like a fuzzy picture. Uh, if you put, you put your hand to the light, you see a shadow of your hand, right? Is that your hand? Surprise. No, it's not. It's a shadow of your hand, right? So it's an image, a foggy picture of what your hand actually is. This is the substance. That's the picture. But the temple on earth was the shadow. The real temple, the real picture was heaven, where God dwelt. That was the substance. But we see a foggy picture, like a foggy image of what it was like where God would dwell. Hebrews says the true and better temple is in heaven. And remember in John 2 when Jesus flips tables? And my favorite part is, whoop, flips tables, right? He says, don't make my, whose house is called? My father's house. So Jesus knows the temple is his father's house. Not just, not, not just a shadow one, but the actual substance, the heavenly one. So think about this very time. How does Jesus go to heaven prepare a place for you eternally in heaven? What does it do? There's a cross. Prepare you on the cross. That's how he prepared it for you. He doesn't build anything. The, the go he's talking about is to death. Jesus Christ came into the world to go to the cross. That's why he came, was to die. He would suffer wrath so we would enjoy eternity. That's, that's a great exchange. His wrath bore our judgment, and we get his credit. His A plus, we get that. 
forever. So the preparing force, he's saying, guys, I'm going to leave and go to heaven. I'm going to make sure you get there. I'm going to prepare it for you. So I'm going to die this gruesome death, and it's going to be yours. My goodness. Make your heart settle like, you went to the cross for me? Oh, with my guilty thoughts and my actions and how I think. There's a cross room for this. He loved me that much. That's what Jesus does. He leaves his father's house for strangers and judgments read Romans 5. For enemies, the Bible says. We're not on good terms. We don't like him. We hate him. The Bible says we hate him. But he came to leave his house and be found a place there as children of God as we know it. <laughs> children, we're children. We're his. He owns us. In a fatherly, loving way. And what love is that? It's the cross. The psalmist writes this in Psalm 5. Evil may not dwell with you. Well. So evil can't be in God's presence, which is why, again, on earth it was so in all these slaughtering animals that Jewish history would always say the blood was the dirt on the ground was just bloody all just red. It was stained red or someone's blood killing, blood splattering. So evil had to be covered. And again, that that's a shadow. Animals don't take away the sin. It's a picture of what Christ would do. Take away our sin so we would dwell and have a presence with him in the temple in heaven. Make sense? Isn't that cool? He goes to the cross for us. We might dwell there eternally. So when the earth seems to give way, things are shaken, it's going to end soon. You get eternally forever. Never. Your father's house. His and yours, your father's house. And it's secured for you. A.W. Pink says this, He has prepared a place for us by entering, and it is a temple, by entering the Holy of Holies as our great high priest, carrying our names in him. They put your name on him, just like you with Israel, put their names on him. He did that, priest did that. And bore him in there, and now you are welcomed in. That's good news. So Christian, let not your heart be troubled. Jesus carried your name to the cross, and your name will be seen in heaven. That's cool. Okay. He loved you to the end. We have a place in eternal rest because Jesus took our eternal wrath. Now look at verse 3. So this is how you know the context when you can say this again, that that's the case. Look at verse 3. Jesus even clarifies further. And if I go prepare a place, if I go to the cross, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So first he goes to the cross. They say he's coming again. Well, what's coming in me? I mean, second coming, right? And Jesus comes back. So not only is he going to prepare it for us perfectly, finally, debt paid, he's like, I'll make sure I get you there. I'm going to come get you. What do I mean? That's how much he loves you. I'm going to step down again. I'm going to gather my people, and they're going to come with me, and that way where I am, you may be also. Nothing to worry about. I'm going to get you. I'm just going to get you. So whether we die, or he comes to get us, either way, Jesus comes. Get us to heaven. He's going to come gather you. He is. The earth is shaking. Jesus is like, I make it shake and stop my alarm. I can get it. That's what he's trying to say. If he went to the cross for a sheep, will he not come down from heaven and get him? Like, what seems, and it's going to sound almost strange, but get my thought here. What seems harder to do? Go to the cross, right? Will he not just come down again and get you? Beloved, of course he will. How easy is that? comes down. 1 Thessalonians 4 says this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command, 
The voice of an archangel, the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will raise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them within the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. This part is sweet. So we will always be with the Lord. When you get to your own to be there, it's your, your eternal dwelling. You are there forever. You're good. If you're in Christ, it's yours. Nothing to worry about. You're there. It could be no sweeter day for the believer. For those who are not in Christ, the wrath of the Lamb is coming. So if you're commanded to respond, to repent of your sin, to trust in Christ, Jesus does not cut breaks on the second turn. He just doesn't. He's coming. So repent now, trust in the ransom that's paid for you. Peter calls it in 1 Peter that this inheritance is undefiled, unperishable, unfading, kept in heaven for you. So it's kept there for you. So it's unfading because Jesus keeps it that way. It's not going to waver like your health because he keeps it that way. If I get it worse, like the world, because he keeps it that way. Let not your hearts be troubled. Jesus purchased your eternal dwellings for you and will himself come to get you to it. So we see the assurance of our eternal dwelling. Next, Jesus can point us to the assurance of his eternal authority. So some pretty big words to say. He just said, hey, I'm going to go to cross, take it ahead, and I can get you myself. A lot of promises, Jesus. Let's be honest. He just said that I'm going to die, come back, and get you, and take you there. Can Jesus promise those things? We trust him. So next is his eternal authority. Verse 4 through 6, kind of a familiar discussion. I think a lot of us know at least verse 6. Uh, maybe not all the text, but we know what Jesus did here to say. Verse 4, and you, know the, and you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do you know where, know where you're going? How do we know the way? So Jesus goes, you know where I'm going. And Thomas goes, no, we don't. So here's a question that I have wrestle with for a little bit. Is that a contradiction? Is Jesus wrong? Jesus says, hey, you know where I'm going. Thomas goes, no, we don't. Is Jesus wrong? So here's, I think, the common understanding. How many times has Jesus made it very clear that he takes him to heaven? You've been in the book of John, like crazy. I mean, we're like little kids. You tell them, I have kids. Yeah, okay. You guys have kids. Do you ever repeat yourself like 12 times? You never told me that. Like, that never happens, right? It happens all the time. Well, guys, we're, we're, we're slow to understand, too. Even the words of Christ. Like, if you remember John 7, he says, uh, I'm going away. And they're kind of like, John 10, he says, I'm the door, so you'll get there. John 11, I'm the, the resurrection and the life. Like, he's told them several times. They don't know that they know, but they do know. So I think that for me that resolves it. They do know. They're just slow to understand. So they know that he's God. He made it very clear who he is. That they're just kind of like, oh, I guess he didn't do that. They're just slow to understand. So they're dependent upon Jesus to actually reveal it to them, though they know the truth. So we're the same way. We may know the text. We may know the promise. We know we need God to say, I need to reveal to you again. You, you just forget so I think, I think that's how we can reconcile that easily. Um, that's what I would say. Anyway, that's just for my, for your sake, and maybe because for me, I think it's a contradiction, but I don't think it is, I think it's clear. So verse 6, Jesus says, here's the answer. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. Um, fun fact, anytime Jesus says the phrase, I am, think Old Testament. Okay, that's a God claim, right? That's um, the I am of the burning bush. So it's kind of a double in time of saying, I'm the way, and also I am the way. So I'm God, I'm the way. So, double thing. So the way, Jesus claims absolute exclusivity here. Right? So he's not a way, as you've heard before, not some way or 
He's a helpful way, a really kind way. He's a deity way. Right? There's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. Right? Um, God the Father opened the door of everlasting life. Only through Christ. There are no other options. There's not. You can't just be have a good track record. He's bad. Your track record is terrible. You can't be a good Buddhist or a really polite Jewish man or a really intelligent Muslim. It is not correct. And Jesus claimed that. Jesus is the only way, only way by which we must be saved. But we, uh, as man, we like to do what the Proverbs say not to do. Uh, I'm going to read this verse to you. I think you, you know it. There is a way that seems right to man. It just, it, this just feels right. Like, I should work for it, and God should go, I thought. Right? I, I earned that heaven. Yeah. I was good. I kept the commandments. There's a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way to death. But Christ came because there is another option. We think that there's another way. Jesus, there's not. That way goes to hell. It's a really big way, and a lot of people are going to do it. So that's what he's trying to say. He's making it very clear. It's a way that seems fair or right or just makes sense in our simple thinking like we know more than God. It makes sense to me. God says, well, not the way. It's not how it works. So he claims absolute exclusivity here. The truth, Jesus did not just teach truth, though he did, correct? Everything he said is true, but he himself is the standard of truth. Excuse me, you drink water. Everything he says is true, and if it doesn't measure up to him, it's wrong. So that means Jesus does not look to a standard beyond himself and say, okay, uh, you've got to be close to this. If you're hitting that nail, you got it. Jesus says, you don't mess to me, you're wrong. So he doesn't just talk truth, he is the truth. Isn't that interesting? He defines it. What he says is true. What he doesn't say is not true. If he makes it, it's true. If he does it, it's true. He's the standard for it. Everything stands up against Christ and falls short. That is not biblical Christianity. Uh, so basically, Jesus versus the world. And spoiler alert, the world is wrong. Is that what he's trying to say? He is the truth. He reveals the truth about God. And the flip side of that is he exposes the truth about our hearts. So we, so any class in anthropology is going to say the opposite of what Jesus is going to tell us. Man is really not that bad. They're not that bad. They're okay, they're trying. Jesus would say they are wicked. And they hate the light. Both their deeds to be exposed. They want to run. So Jesus corrects in theology and anthropology. Therefore, in a culture or everyone now, if you talk to anybody in your whole life who's not your spouse, so most of us probably okay, yeah, okay, yeah. So people will say things like, Well, my truth is my truth, and your truth is what? It's yours. It's your belief. You like chocolate? I like vanilla. No one's right or wrong. It's an opinion. Would Jesus agree with that? What do you guys think? No. Jesus would say that truth has to be exclusive. It has to be. Um, I was on this article last night looking at something. Um, I just typed in like absolute truth. Boop, enter. Like a fifth or sixth, something like that. Six, seven, one down was some kind of religion I hadn't heard of. I don't know. Bahandi or I don't know. Not Gandhi, but I don't know what it was. Anyway, Baha'i, and it said that we believe uh, that all religions are valid. 
We don't exclude anybody. Doesn't sound horrible. Like, well, that's nice. Like, you're really welcoming. <clears throat> What's funny, though, is what religions do they exclude? Those who say there is one way. But that's wrong. They may say that's wrong. So any truth is exclusive. You see how that just cancels itself out in five seconds? Well, we, we, we believe all our right. Can we say you're wrong? Well, that's wrong. Uh-oh, tolerance. Anyway, <laughs> Jesus says that either he's God or he's not. He's the only way or he's not. There's no mutual ground. And believers will change that. Jesus is the source of all life, so he says he is the life, both physical and spiritual. He is the source of it. Colossians 1.16 says all things were created for him and through him and by him. John 1.4 says in him was life. So in Christ there is life. So if he gives life to him, he wills, he says in John 5. So Jesus said many times, I am life and I dish it out. Every baby born is because I command to be born. Every person that is born spiritually, I command to be so. He's the source of all life. Jesus says that in John 3, our hearts love the darkness and we hate the light. We love our sin and we hate and run from God. And we're all like spiritual Lazaruses, is what Jared would say. And what I would agree with in John 11, we are just dead to God. Um, has anybody here ever got like a rock in your hand and tried to show how strong you are and try to crush your rock? Can you crush it? I mean, if you're holding can, but you can't, right? Because rocks don't move. They don't like bend or give. They just do it like a fool, right? Oh, but your hand, it's fleshy, right? It responds. It's squishy. It, it makes movements. It responds, right? So God says before we're in Christ, when we're spiritually dead and alive for the world, our hearts are like rock. They, they don't respond to the commands. They just bounce off. Just, there's no response. There's no give. It just hard. So we need Jesus, we need the Holy Spirit to apply the work of the cross to our hearts, and we get a new heart, the Bible says, a heart of flesh, which is responsive. The commands go, oh, I can do that. I do want to tell the truth. Yeah, I do that. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to sin. Okay. So I do want to believe. Yeah. So that's, that's, the, that's the change that only Jesus can give. He grants life to whom he will. Verse 6, again, no one comes to the Father except through me. It's kind of the flip side of what you just said, so it's kind of negative way of the same statement. So I'm the only way. No one comes but through me. So really it's kind of the same thing, but it's just clarifying even more. Every view against me is wrong. No one gets to God but by me. Um, and this should do two things for your soul. If you're a Christian, it should make you just worship. He came and got me. He's the only one. He came and got me. I know myself. I know I deserve hell. He came and got me. So it should give us a response that all of our sinful acts and thoughts and actions are they're canceled. Gone. No one can just follow but by me. You will get there, believer. No one but through me. So it should cause worship. It should cause our affections for Christ to stir. But it should increase your desire, secondly, for the burden of those who don't know that. Hearing comes through faith. Faith comes through the word of Christ. I think I've that switch around. But the point is, they don't hear the word of Christ. Wrath. It's coming. You know that. So not only is it good for us to soak in, but it's good for us to pour out to others and run to it. Say, he's the only way. Do not trust your ways. Your mind is foolish. Don't trust it. Charles Spurgeon said this, Have you no wish for others to be saved? Then you're not saved yourself. Let me share that. Spurgeon's very gentle with it. What he's saying is, if you, if you believe that's true, you should be telling somebody. If you're not, you need to check your pulse a little bit. If it's true, go around and tell your friend. 
has been told that the gospel is a great story has never been told. That's what been said before. So let's cancel that out. Uh, verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. So every religion Jesus just said is wrong. And then he says, you can only even know who God is if you come to me. So Muslims, when they pray to God, or Buddhists, when they pray to, what do they do? Hindus, when they pray to their 324 million gods, which is, I think, a pretty accurate number if you check. They don't even know who God is. It just occurs. It's, it's wrong. They, they don't even know anything about God in, in a relational way. They know nothing. Well, my God's like that. Your God does not exist. So Jesus is saying, though we can even know anything about God if we know Christ. And if not, then that's breaking the second commandment by making a God in our own image. So the second commandment is found, fulfilled, if you know Christ. You will never make God in your image if you follow Christ. Now, we'll sin and say, well, God's more like this, and he's really not. But the point is, you can only know God if you know the Son. First uh, John 2 says, who denies the Son, no, I'm sorry, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So if you have Jesus, the Son of God, you got God the Father too. That's the, that's, that's the only answer. You got two. We can know a lot about God through Romans 1 would say creation. So you can look at a tree and say, well, so I had to make that some kind of big tree maker, right? We, we know that. So you know that there's a creator. You know there's a big creator. Romans 2 would say your conscience. So you know there's something. There's a justice system. Someone got to get punished, like shooters who died. They can just die. He does. There's, there's no sense there. It's not fair. So we know that a God exists. He's a creator and that he's just. That's all you can know. You don't have Christ. That's it. That's all you know. So we need the gospel to know who Christ is. For the seven through nine here, I know it's kind of deep, but this is the same point about who Jesus is. He goes on this explanation of who he is. Whoever has seen me, in verse 9, has seen the Father. So Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. And Jesus goes, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you know him, you know God. You know him. <clears throat> What is Jesus trying to say? He's not trying to do some kind of mystical, weird thing about the Father and His really the Son incarnate. That's what Jesus believe, and that's not correct. He's not trying to say that God and Jesus are the same person different names, because that's also incorrect. What he's trying to say is that God of the Old Testament, if you see me, you know that God, because I am that God. Isn't that cool? So the one who saved the people out of Egypt is Jesus. The one who appeared on the temple, or on the mountain with Moses with actual feet, probably stood there, again, would have died for, but probably Jesus. Before Abraham was, Jesus, I am. I was that God. So Jesus said, if you see me, you know who God is. Which means any complaint that maybe you've heard, maybe you even had in your heart, I've had it before too. And it's a common attack in the Bible. The God's Old Testament is so wrathful. You get it before? They're different gods. He's just so mean. And usually Jesus is always about love, love, love. Did I get it before? It's common saying. <clears throat> this verse would say that's, that's incorrect. Jesus would say, well, actually, in Exodus 33, God says, I'm a God merciful and gracious, showing steadfast love to thousands, slow to anger. Something like a new testament God to me. And then the book of Revelation, Jesus says, I'm coming back with a rod I'm going to clean some house here. I'm going to take, I'm, I'm, I'm going to show wrath. So maybe these things actually are the same God. Jesus said that they are. Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. Hebrews 1 says this. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. The exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. So Jesus is the exact, like I said, I mean, the exact imprint. There's only one thumbprint of you. You know that? 
You're welcome. Yeah. Uh, one of you. So the thumb is the father. This is just the exact same. It's Jesus. He's saying we're the same essence. Not the same person. Because we're distinct persons. But we're both God. Yeah, I know. Confusing. It's okay. We're good. John 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was God. And the Word was with God. So this has been the theme of John since John 1. Jesus is God and He's with God the Father, correct? Uh, the Nicene Creed would say this in a beautiful way. I love his words. Light of light, very God of very God. Isn't that beautiful? Ooh. People who can't like get the, the training words, they nail it. I've been in. They nail it. Let not your hearts be troubled. Jesus is God. You can trust Him. And now 10 and 11, He's going to say how I am God and the Father you pray to and know. We work in the exact same way. There's no distinction. So what Jesus is trying to say is believe in God, believe also in me. We're not going to give you different answers. Like the Father's not saying do this and Jesus says, actually, you should do this. No, no, no. He's trying to say we're the same essence. We have the same will. We're going to tell you the exact same thing. We're on the same team. We work perfectly together. So that's the distinction he's trying to make here, which is 10 through 11, if you look. Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. The Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So Jesus kind of, again, he's, he's clarifying, I'm not the Father. I think I, I have to be so clear, he's not saying he's God the Father. But he's one with God the Father. That makes sense. That's what he's trying to clarify for us. So this text actually explains the Godhead a little better. It makes us understand that Jesus is God, yet distinct from God the Father. Furthermore, in verse 10, Jesus says this, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. All that Jesus says, the Father has authorized him to say. So every harsh word or convicting word or just comforting word of Jesus, the Father is saying, yeah, I said the exact same thing. So there's no, so when it says, well, God told me so, well, this doesn't say, well, he didn't tell you so. So Jesus is trying to say, trying to, we operate on the same wavelength. We're both God. Yet, yet there's one God. <laughs> uh, that's awesome, isn't it? Now, if you look at verse 10, I, uh, when I took these notes down, I thought I um, wrote something wrong. So read verse 10 with me, if you would. Not out loud, already out loud. Um, second part. Do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Now, I thought I said words at first, because Jesus said speaking, right? I thought I speak my authority, the Father does his words. You think you'd say words, right? I thought so. But I was kind of like, wait, he says works. So, what that means is Jesus' words are the Father's works. So, confusing, but think about this for a minute, if you will. Um, have you read the book of Genesis before? Read first book of the Bible, Genesis? Mm -hmm. When God says, what happens? What he said. So, God's command creates what it, what it hints. Right? God's word commands or creates what it commands. Let there be light. There's light. Let there be all these little squirrels in meditation. And there's, there they are. Lazarus, come forth. Because he comes forth. Lazarus, dead man. So God's word creates what it commands. It's kind of like if you have like light active or voice activate light. Light's on, they turn on. So God does that in everything. Everything. Which is why God's word is so powerful and necessary for salvation. Um, Jared seems to always single me out for apologetics. I don't know a lot about him. I just like him. So I'm not some like scholar. 
just for clearing. I appreciate the plug-in, but uh, a, a little apologetics are helpful for me when I was very skeptical and just like, isn't the Crohn's right? I don't, I don't know. Like maybe. So I'm all for apologetics. I think they're great. But what is interesting is the reason why knowledge doesn't save a person because knowledge isn't the problem. So the reason why if you can give someone all the evidence in the whole world, now could God use that? Yes, I'm not saying nay to that. But if God gives more evidence, I believe He exists. What more do you want? Creation, conscious in Christ. What do you mean? So that's why when we're when you're sharing gospel with somebody, use the Bible. Well, God says we need to repent and believe. Of course. Because the Bible creates what it commands. If they need repentance and faith, tell them. God said you need to repent and believe in the Son. So God's Word, if that's true, if God's Word is that powerful to make a light appear out of nothing, we should use it when we're talking about what we're doing with the gospel. Does that make sense? That's what Jesus is trying to say here. Believe me that I am the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. What Jesus is trying to say very clearly is look. I've raised a dead man to life. I've fed thousands. I've healed people like crazy. And yet, your dead heart has come to life. You know who I am. So God's works include your salvation. Do you see the power of God to save a dead sin? Like, think about it. You did not want God. I did it. Like my own thing. You love sin. It was attractive. Like you're like a like a fish in a lure. When God would show his hand, he would say, get away. You'd stop it. Or you'd cuss at him. Whatever. I'm going to do it. And then all of a sudden, now you love the things of God? You hate sin? Is that not a miracle? What you're trying to say is, if you, look at the work done in your heart. That's the worst I should have on him. He saved your soul. You're not going to hell. You're going to heaven. Eternal forever. So Jesus' authority here is making it very clear. I am God, you can trust me, you can depend on me, you should worship me, you should treasure me with all your heart because I am the creator of all things. Who trusts that? Last point here. Jesus clarified who he is. Now we're going to see that Jesus is going to orchestrate all things, even your prayers, for the best end possible. The best end. So God's eternal glory. Look at verse 12. Jesus, people who say Jesus never claimed to be God, these verses which make very clear over that he is, especially these few. Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 12, whoever believes in me will do I'm sorry, will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Uh, the book of Acts is a very interesting book. You read the book of Acts. Um, but a lot of things happen. And if you notice, what Jesus says is, hey, don't do anything until I come back. And they're like, what? So he comes back and says, don't do anything until I send the Spirit. And they're like, what? Jesus. Like, so they're always confused. Jesus sends the Spirit, and then what happens? Dead people come alive like crazy. You get rid of the bath. It's nuts. Like demons being cast out of people. There's miracles happening. The apostles are doing the works of Christ. So they did. So the works he's talking about are my apostles are making it very clear. You speak for me. You do the works that I've done. And whether that ends with them or begins with us is not for discussion. That's not what I'm talking about right now. The point is. The Holy Spirit is how the words of Jesus are carried out in the world. Through us, through people who are just weary, confused, and weak. And now here's, here's the funny part. Greater work, Jesus, really? I do something greater than work. Anybody ever walk in the water here? No hands up so far. There's a water day on Wednesday, aren't you? Greater works than walking on water? Feeding five, 
thousands of lunchable? Like, come on, Jesus. Greater, greater works. Greater. I think it depends on how you understand the word greater. Uh, what's greater? Uh, physical healing or eternal rest? Measure your heart, Christian. Dude, this one is great. But if you beat your arm, you'll go to hell. Oh, great. Jesus is trying to say the greatest work is seeing a sinner come to life. So the angels see it best. He's in serious too. The angels see it best. They see that this is not flesh and blood, this is spirit. This is spiritual warfare. They see a guy who is under the control of Satan go, I want Christ. First Peter 1 says that they see the gospel and they're kind of like, like they're, they're, this is a longing to look into it. It's the gospel we say, you know what, what we're curious about? How about God's hand came back to life in Mark chapter 5? The angel would say, We see a dead guy come to life spiritually, we see it all the time. We should learn from the angel just a little bit. They're beholding this gospel, and they're moved by it. So that's what they're doing, they're doing correct. So let's be more caught up in spiritual salvation and physical change. Both are great. But one's greater. And Jesus is trying to make it very clear. The greater works are us preaching the gospel, of Saul Tarsus being saved, of the Philippian jailer becoming a Christian. Those are the greater works. And Jesus says, what happened because he is going to the Father. So when Jesus ascends, the Spirit descends, empowers us who are weak and doubtful, and why? let them believe that we have it. Empowers us to do things that we don't even know what to do. Pray. Preach the gospel. Talk to people. Have a word come to your head. Right? He empowers us to do these things. And God gets the glory. Verse 13, 14, then we'll close. Jesus calls us the point of prayer. He says this, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. The Father may be glorified in the Son. So what does in his name mean? Jesus said, ask me anything you want. And Prosperity Gospel says, ask me anything you want. I'll give it to you. Just keep asking. Give more, I'll give it to you. It's not true. What Jesus says here, ask anything in my name, in my authority, in my character, that's consistent with my nature, in my will. That's what he means. Ask anything in my name and I'll do it. What is his will? Beloved, the same will of the Father. What's the Father's will? It's in your lap or on your phone. This is word. This is, this is will. That you grow in Christ, that you would trust him for provision, that you love your wife, that you discipline your sins, that you not be slothful. To be bold the gospel. Well, that's his will. How about things you don't know? God should I take his job and whatever. Well, I should take his raise. Pray, ask, make a decision. Read the Bible. Let's see. Oh, I'm not doing there. Pray, ask a Christian friend. Take a shot, see what God wants to do. You know what he wants. That's how you do that. So belief in Christ, faith in his person is supposed to be displayed by our prayer in his name. If you believe he is, who says he is, you're going to pray a whole lot more. I don't pray enough. I know he's God, but I'm praying to him like he's God. I just pray when I'm scared sometimes. Or I don't think about it. So you believe that he is this person and has done these things to pray. Jesus says this, that the Father may be glorified. Jesus' greatest desire is God's glory. Thank goodness. He loves God's glory more than your prayers that are wrong. So here, let me end this prayer part with this. Jesus will only answer your prayers so God will be glorified. Make sense? So God, Jesus' great desires God's glory. If you're pray, if you're if the answer to prayer is yes or no, we'll make that happen, he'll do it. If it won't, he won't do it. Because God knows better than we do. In our prayers. We should be praying, Father, your will, not mine. Let Jesus pray. That's what we should be praying. 
Jesus says in verse 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. And he'll do it. Christian, ask Jesus. Pray to him. Talk to him. He'll do it. He's all authority. So believe in God, believe also in me. In the midst of fear and trembling, should have, we know that we have an eternal dwelling. Jesus has eternal authority. And God works all things for his eternal glory. I want to end with one passage to read uh, from a song, not uh, the scriptures. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him.